Uh, this is a book that's out, bestseller right now. That has to get one of the, the best titles for a while, right? There was no Jesus, there is no God. Um, the argument of the book is that there's no historical proof that Jesus ever existed. Now, that's what the title implies, but then you actually get into the book, and that's actually not what the book is about. The book is that there's no historical evidence that Jesus was the Son of God and the Christ. Different? Slightly different, okay. Uh, but that doesn't sell near as many books and stuff. So the other thing to know about this is that it, it's an old argument. The old argument is, it goes back to the 1700s, that early Christianity created the myth of Jesus. And therefore, there's nothing solid kind of behind that. Now, we know that the four Gospels, which are the only first century documents we have that refer to Jesus, they are a mixture of history and theology and all that. We know that. Um, but the vast majority of scholars, contrary to the book, I would say probably 99.999% of the scholars in the world, whether they be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, whatever, do not for a second doubt that there's a solid historical core behind the Jesus narrative. Now, they might disagree as to which details are grounded in history and which details are theological. Uh, comments to the commentary like that new book are kind of more driven by ideology. It's bad science and bad history, but, you know, it does sell books, so we'll keep dealing with that. Uh, a reminder, the goal of our series, we want to look at what can we actually know historically. Now, Again, this is not scientific proof, but, you know, historical plausibility, best as we can reconstruct what's going on. We've done three things so far. We talked about the fact that uh, we're now kind of 100 years into this. People actually were 300 years into it. Uh, there was an original quest going back to the Enlightenment uh, where people tried to reconstruct the life of Jesus. And uh, as of 1900 and something, what we realize is that most people just really recreated themselves. You know, Albert Schweitzer's comment. Uh, there was the second com uh, deal, which began to look at it. Uh, that didn't really get anywhere either. Uh, and then there's the third quest they were in now, which seems to be producing a lot of results. We then looked at John the Baptist. I'm curious, what stood out about John the Baptist uh, that we looked at two weeks ago? Where he presented himself, yeah. As they say in real estate, location, location, location. Yeah, what he was wearing. He was a big deal. First prophet in Israel, five centuries. That's a big deal. Yeah, and people knew it, and people flocked to him and stuff. We're going to have a little interesting comment today that it appears that at one point Jesus actually drew a bigger crowd uh, than John did, even before he went up north. Uh, last week, Susan walked you to the baptism of Jesus. What stood out about that? What's that? John Baptist. You know, it's interesting. Even the most skeptical historian says that's the one historical fact everybody agrees on because it's embarrassing. Because to be baptized by somebody implies they're superior to you. And so you get all this fancy backpedaling, you know, in Matthew. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me and all that kind of stuff. John baptized Jesus, which means Jesus submitted to baptism. Yeah, it's a core. A uh, lot of theological language in the stories we have it. But behind it, most scholars would say what we're probably dealing with, it uh, looks like, is, is a visionary experience. As Mark says, uh, Jesus saw, Jesus heard. And if only Jesus sees and only Jesus hears, what is that? 
most likely a visionary experience if nobody else can see it. So now normally at this point, what you would do in a, a, a life and ministry of Jesus uh, course is that you, you're going to turn north, right? Where are we going to go next? We're going to go to Galilee and to the ministry of Jesus up there. Uh, and that's what we normally do, but we're not going to do that this morning because if you do that, you're going to jump over some absolutely fascinating material that almost nobody knows anything about. Does that intrigue you just a little bit? Okay, yeah. <laughs> what they did not teach you in Sunday school about Jesus, okay? We're going to go there today. We want to kind of look at that. Uh, it's usually ignored, and it's about Jesus' ministry prior to Galilee. Did you know he had a ministry prior to Galilee? I was never taught that. According to one gospel, Jesus had an extensive ministry in two locations prior to going up to Galilee. So that's where we want to go. Now, there's a reason that you never learned this in Sunday school. And there's a reason we did not learn it at Perkins when I was over there. Uh, it, and the reason that it's ignored is a fascinating story in itself. So we want to do two things today. We want to talk about the story of why this material has been historically ignored. And then we want to look at the material and say, okay, if you do pay attention to it, what can you actually learn about Jesus of Nazareth before he goes north up there? So here's the common understanding. If you want solid historical information about Jesus, where do you go? Gospels. All of them? <laughs> if you had a course in school, which of the four would you omit? John. Why? Later? It's theological. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus, Jesus never said anything remotely like that. What did Jesus proclaim? The kingdom of God. He didn't proclaim himself. He proclaimed the kingdom. Yet in John, it's I am, I am, I am, I am. So most people would say it looks like the speeches in John are theological statements, taking what Jesus said and then interpreting it you know, in, in a new kind of way. And that's, you know, that's part of the broad consensus. Now, the idea here is that you're going to be limited to what are known as there's two names. The synoptic gospel, got a handle on that word. Sin means synthesize, same, together. Optic, that's a hard one. Yeah. Seen together. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke put side by side, kind of fit together. As a matter of fact, most scholars think that Mark is first, and it appears that about 90 plus percent of Mark is repeated in Luke and in Matthew, word for word in Greek. What does that tell you? Plagiarism, pure and simple, yeah. <laughs> Copied. Mark was a source for Matthew and Luke, which is why almost no manuscripts of Mark survive from the ancient world. One. Why? You don't need it. You've got Matthew and you've got Luke. Yeah. The other term is the Marking Gospels. I've not heard that term until a couple of years ago. The Marking Gospels say if, if you buy Mark and Priority, and that Luke and, and uh, Matthew kind of take Mark and expand by adding some other material, then basically in the four Gospels, you've got two types of Gospels. You've got the ones that follow Mark's storyline. And what do you have? What's the other one? John. So it's not three against one. It's one against one. Mark in view versus Johannine view. And there's some real differences in that, as we now know. So those would be the other ones. Uh, now, there's a corollary. The corollary is simply this. If you think that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the more historical, 
and you think that John is not, it's theological. Then when you go to, to study the historical Jesus and try to piece together what his life might have looked like, what the timeline would look like, what his ministry would look like, how much are you going to rely on John? Zero, not a zip goose egg. Okay. Welcome to New Testament scholarship because that's basically the story that's been there for, for quite a while. Uh, the argument is that John's presentation uh, is so radically different. For example, uh, in John, we don't have anything about the kingdom of God. We've got Jesus talking about himself. The other gospels, he preaches the kingdom of God. I mean, they're, they're, you can just, get, just Google it. There's pages of difference. About 95% of the material in John is not in the synoptics. About 95% of the synoptics, don't, don't hang me on that, that, that percentage point, but you get the idea, you know. There, there's a couple of things that are the same. One is that the feeding of the 5,000 is in all four Gospels, and there's one other thing that's in there. But the, it's a radically different presentation. So that the content is theological, not historical, therefore we should not look at John. Now, this is not a new idea. Let's go back to about the year 150. To an early church father in Egypt, Alexandria, called Clement of Alexandria. He's the teacher of another guy named Origen. And... He's the first guy to dismiss John. Now, he's writing about 150. We think that John was written around 90 to 100. So John's now known out there, and this is what he basically says. But John, last of all, you know, by the year 150, he knows that John was the last gospel written, okay? Uh, seeing that what was historical was set forth in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a, there it is, spiritual gospel. So for Clement, there's two kinds of gospels. There's some that are historical, and there's some that are not so historical. And this accounts for the differences there. Now, this idea has got traction, and it's stuck. It's not been embraced by everybody, but throughout history, the, the, there's been a real prejudice against John. It's in, well, it's a positive prejudice if you're looking for great theology. It's a negative prejudice if you're looking for a little bit of, of history. Now, the result is it's just flat out been disregarded. Now, game changer. Twelve years ago, paradigm shift. Flip-flop, the exact opposite is now believed to be true. Okay? Uh, one recent development, New Testament scholarship, that is really, really exciting is basically the idea of a fundamental rethinking. Here's a book that came out, The Fourth Gospel and the Quest for Jesus. Look what I've uh, highlighted and read there. Modern Foundations Reconsidered. Does that say it? We're going to rethink this prejudice against John. 2002, a new group of the Society of Biblical Literature. You know what the Society of Biblical Literature is, right? All those professors that teach Bibles, Bible classes at all the universities around the world, Harvard, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, <laughs> Yale, all that kind of stuff, Perkins over here. Matter of fact, one of the professors over here, uh, uh, Jamie Clark Souls, co-chair of this committee for four years. So Perkins is one of the places where this work's being done. It's called the John, Jesus, and History Group. Here's a group of scholars, there's about 60 of them all together, who basically are saying, whoa, let's re-examine John in light of everything that we now know in terms of is there any historical information in John? Sure, John's got theology. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was, you know, full of theology. But does that mean that there's no historical information in it? And this is, this is what they've been doing. As a result, John is now back on track. It is considered to be a source of solid historical information, so much so that the guy out there who, uh, you heard uh, the, the book by John Meyer, the Catholic theologian, a New Testament scholar called uh, the, um, the Mar a Marginal Jew, five-volume work, probably considered to be the definitive work on the historical Jesus. He buys this, and he's now woven it into his magnum opus, so it's, it's become mainline. Uh, we got some remarkable results and stuff. Matter of fact, books are spinning out this book. John, Jesus, remember we talked in the Old Testament about the renewal of Israel? This book was released about six weeks ago. So this stuff is still, still coming out. It's, it's <coughs> wonderful stuff. Uh, several volumes. The first volume was written, uh, just raising for the scholarly community about why we think John should be looked at. I want to give you some quotations from that first book and why it should be taken seriously. This is volume one, page one. John has more rock-solid, verified archaeological content and topographical, you know what that term means? Locations, places, things like that, detail, than the other four Gospels combined. As a matter of fact, one of these authors says, ten times more than the other three combined. As a matter of fact, John is now used as a source for archaeological digs. Okay? 1970s, for example, John indicates that Jesus was actually tried not in the Antonia Fortress where, you know, you know the Via Della Rosa? Where you walk, you know, for hundreds of years Christians have been walking that walk. It, there's a lot invested in that. Uh, according to John's gospel, it couldn't have been there. It would have been in Herod's palace, a couple of miles away, stuff, and there would have been this thing called the Praetorium. Uh, trouble is, there was no archaeological evidence that the Praetorium ever existed. Therefore, John is spiritual. 1972, they're digging in Jerusalem. Guess what they flip over? Praetorium. It happens to be located in Herod's palace. John was right numerous details. They were able to find Bethsaida based on John's description where it was. It's been lost for 2,000 years because it was destroyed in the first century and was never rebuilt. So John also bears many features of historical realism that contribute to a more plausible view of Jesus' ministry than the Mark and Gospels. We're going to look at a few examples of that here in just a second. Furthermore, John possesses a great deal of uh, mundane and theologically innocent. Now, if you read John, real clear, John's got a theological agenda. And there's a lot of material in John that, that's being driven by the uh, agenda. Um, but behind the scenes, he's just also throwing in all this, this topographical type stuff, and it doesn't seem to add anything to his agenda, so why would he do that? The thought now is that that's what he inherited. The Jesus stories that came to him it's what he puts in there. John has details found in no other gospel. Details have been corroborated by archaeological discoveries, many of them. John is astoundingly well performed about pre-70 Jerusalem. If you want to know about pre-70 Jerusalem, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are worthless. John is not. John tells you where to dig and what to look for. Bethsaida, John's gospel helped us find it. Other locations all over the place. 
uh, the speeches in John, those are, by the way, the, the things that you first throw out, right? I am the, I am the, you know, kind of stuff. Turns out they've turned out to be a gold mine of Jesus' sayings that are now believed to go back to the historical Jesus himself. Somewhere between 70 and 80, depending what scholar you talk to, it's not the speech. We don't think Jesus ever actually gave one of the speeches. But the speeches weave into it little illustrations, little references, little metaphors that when you take the time to actually look at it, you know, it sounds strikingly like Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the stuff that Jesus says there. I'm going to give you four of them. Do you not say four months more? Then comes the harvest. But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. What's striking about that is that it's using nature metaphors. Did Jesus ever do that? All the time. You know. So here you have in John, statement by Jesus, using a nature metaphor, okay? A little bit later, same speech. The reaper has already received wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life. Now, eternal life is one of those buzzwords. It's in John, only in John. Uh, it kind of replaces the kingdom. So the sower and the reaper rejoice together. Did Jesus ever talk about sowers? Absolutely he did. For here the saying holds true. One sows, the other reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Material has probably been reworked, but has Jesus written all over it? Others have labored, but you have entered into their labor. Okay, John 12. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Could Jesus have said that? Absolutely he could. Again, same type of metaphor. John 12. Those who love uh, their life and lose it, those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the, the, the hating this world and the eternal life language, that's Johannine. But using a nature metaphor, first and last, least and lost, and that dichotomy, it's got Jesus written all over it. Okay. Now, these sayings, scholars would now say, ring true to what we know about Jesus from the other Gospels, but they have been excluded from any kind of discussion about what Jesus may or may not say, either because it's in John, therefore, we just throw it out, or it's in some big, long theological speech. And you start getting one of those big, long theological speeches, and you say, oh, boy, here we go again. I'm just not even going to look at that. Well, maybe we should, because maybe inside that there's some nuggets. John gives us a timeline, more historically plausible. What is your understanding of how long the ministry of Jesus lasted? Years. Three. Where did we get that? John. Mark could have it in a month. For real. Mark's everything's quickly, 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 quickly. Mark's this movement along, okay? Uh, less than a year. We only have one Passover. We have three definite Passovers in John, probably a fourth. Although the fourth one's a little, little, little iffy. Okay. Now, if you got three Passovers, how many years you got? Think about it. <laughs> Passover to Passover. Passover to Passover. And if we have a fourth Passover. So the broad consensus among scholarship is that Jesus' ministry probably lasted two, three years. Okay? And does that make sense? Here's Paula Fredrickson. Any of you all watched Jesus uh, from Jesus to Christ on PBS? several years ago she's that good-looking brunette you know <laughs> it's 30 years ago she's you know she's looked like the rest of us now so that's okay uh john alone of all our canonical canonical gospels provides us the sort of picture that can point us towards a historically plausible reconstruction john alone 
can do that, okay? And the shape of Jesus' mission and the circumstances surrounding his death. And by the way, this is now a standard deal. So what does John put on the table before we get to item number two? Here's some things that the Gospel John puts on the table. One, Jesus' ministry is now almost universally believed to have been much longer than a year, most likely two or three years. So if he dies in the year 30, he would have started his ministry when? 27-ish, somewhere in there, okay? Jesus traveled back and forth between Galilee and Judea many times. Now in Mark, he goes to baptize, he goes to Galilee, preach, 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 goes to Jerusalem, he's killed. Five days after he goes to Jerusalem, the first time he's dead. In John, Jesus is moving back and forth. What would make more sense in terms of a first century Jew over a three-year period? Yeah, he's required by law to be in Jerusalem at least three times a year for what are called the pilgrimage festivals, okay? You would expect that. Number three, Jesus' ministry is not limited to Galilee. John has stories of Jesus in Samaria. Do you remember any of them? Woman at the well. Now, in the other Gospels, Jesus tells positive stories about Samaritans, the good Samaritan. Okay. There's a lot of Samaritan-type imagery in there, in Judea, in the area. We already know he's been at Perea. And not just during the last week. As a matter of fact, Luke concurs with John that Bethany had special place in, in Jesus' ministry. It's kind of a home base. And there's a couple of women there. You remember them? Mary and Martha. Now, Luke does not seem to know anything about Lazarus. John tells us that Lazarus is the brother. Uh, Jesus spent time in Jerusalem multiple occasions to attend the festivals, not just the week he was killed, but many times. Uh, the order of the passion narrative. Historians say John's version just flat makes more sense than the Markan version. The trial narrative, much more sense. Uh, the Last Supper, uh, you know, in, the, in, in John's gospel, everything happens a day earlier. And the way things fit together. For example, it's always pu puzzled people. Mark says it's the Passover meal, but there's no lamb. Oops. But any meal during the Passover season would be a Passover meal, not the Passover meal. So if Jesus ate the night before a meal during Passover with his disciples, they would not have had lamb. Okay. John's gospel makes much more sense. Uh, six massive amounts hundreds of topographical details that they're still mining. Locations, sites, peoples, events, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, on and on. Uh, consistent with what we know from other sources and, by the way, corroborated archaeological. Uh, John is the only gospel that really has a ton of archaeological evidence to support it. The others simply do not. Seven, uh, and this is the one we want to run with today with the time we've got left. John alone, John uniquely, gives us a few tantalizing glimpses into the period in Jesus' life and ministry before he went to Galilee. And so before next week we go up to Galilee and start his, his ministry there, we want to uh, look at that. Again, this is prior to Galilee. Uh, it's intriguing. This is John Myers, the Marginal Jew, which is a five-volume series, four out, and uh, and. John Meyer pulls all this material. He's not part of the John Jesus and History Group. He just happens to be probably the most respected New Testament scholar, Jesus scholar on the planet at the moment. And he's basically saying this stuff rings true for him. So the standard picture, the one we get from the Mark and Gospels, is that Jesus only began his ministry after John is taken out of the picture. We get that from the Gospel of Mark, verse 14. 
after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Does that ring true with what you've been taught? Okay, yeah, Sunday School 101. John indicates that the story is a little more complicated than that. That actually there were some things going on before this that John takes the time to tell us a little bit about. And that the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus actually overlap. So it's not Jesus is baptized, leaves, John's arrested, Jesus starts. They actually are at the same place, the same time, for an extended period of time, doing the same things with, guess what, the same disciples. Did you know that nearly half of the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John? That's interesting. The only two groups in the ancient world we know that actually practiced baptism the way that John did it is the Baptist movement and the Jesus movement. The rest are doing ritual purity type things. Uh, don't get misled with people saying everybody baptized. Well, if you mean they used water, yeah. Ritual purification, mikvah. This is different. And Jesus and John are the only two. The Jesus was with the John for a period of time at Bethany beyond the Jordan where we know John was active. And for a second period of time later, in a different location, all before going to Galilee. John alone gives us an insight to this. He does this often in spite of his theology. Uh, so here's the chronology. This is, by the way, pretty widely accepted now. The most probable date for Jesus' death is the year 30. A few scholars will argue 33. It has to do with a lot of history, but, but the consensus is 30. John tells us his ministry probably lasted, let's give it three years, just, you know, just round that off. So now we're looking at the years 27 to 30, Jesus is active. We know John was active before Jesus, right? And, and by the way, John had to be active long enough to build a reputation. You don't go out there day one and get crowds pouring out of Jerusalem. Okay, that takes time, you know. And you don't get on Herod's radar to kill you unless you've been out there for a while. So we knew he was active for a while. Guess, it's pure and simple, that's all it is. Many scholars say we think John was probably active a couple, three years, about like Jesus was. That would give him the time to build up his, his fame. He would get on Herod's r radar, and then he would be eliminated. Uh, pushes the chronology probably around 24, 25, somewhere back then. Now, this is the period that interests us. This is the period from the year 24 to the year 27. It's the period of John's active ministry and the period before Jesus began his Galilean ministry. Are you interested? Okay. We have some stuff to work with. John's going to give us a few tantalizing glimpses. Now, here's what you need to know. John does not stop and say, oh, by the way, before Jesus went up to Galilee, this is what he was doing. That's not his intent. He's telling these theological stories, and he's sprinkling in this topographical stuff, and he's just sort of offhandedly saying, oh, by the way, Jesus, and this was going on, and this was going on, and you start looking at those this is going on, and you're going, whoa, had never really noticed that. So the information is in chapter 1. And chapter 3. And it's not a lot, but it's, 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 it's way freighted. Uh, the idea here is that their ministries are overlapping. And that they are connected in even more significant ways. To the point, and this is what many scholars will say today, that this bothers some people, so if it bothers you, I apologize up front. Jesus and John appear to have been part of the same movement. Does that bother you? So far, so good. Okay. Uh, they're part of a larger movement uh, to the point that the Jesus movement most likely began within the Baptist movement. Does that bother you yet? 
Okay, wait for it, wait for it. Here it comes. <laughs> Jesus most likely began his ministry as a disciple of John. That bothers some people. What do you mean? John's the one who's not important. Jesus is the one important. But that's what it looks like. Yeah? Who does Josephus write about? Who's the big deal? John. And Jesus comes into this movement that appears to be a part of it. So let, let's look at the evidence. Okay, John begins this by telling there's a period when Jesus the, and John the Baptist were working side by side where John is baptizing. This would be at uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan. Here it is. John 1, 26 through 28. Among you, this is John talking to his disciples, among you stands, now here's the stereotype. Jesus came down one day, baptized by John, took a good 90 seconds, and then Jesus bails, right? He's gone. John does what he does. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. It sounds like that Jesus is not zipping in and out, but he's there for a while. This took place at Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John 1, 29. The next day, Jesus, uh, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Did Jesus leave? No. 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples when he saw Jesus passing by. So it looks like there's at least a little bit of time here, several days, when they're kind of operating in the same area. <coughs> Chapter 3, one more s snapshot, verse 25. Now, a discussion about purification arose between John's disciples and the Jew. I would imagine it's something like this. John, you're out there in the river and you're baptizing, but it doesn't appear to be what we do in the mikvah. It appears to, so they're, you know, they're, they're discussing John, what are you doing? What's the meaning of this out there? They came to John and said to him, oh, by the way, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan, who would that have been, by the way? To whom you testified. He's still here. And what's he doing? Baptizing. And all are going to him. To the point that Jesus is now drawing a bigger crowd than John is. Again, we don't have a lot to work with here. These are certainly the Now, the statements appear to uh, refer to a window of time when John and Jesus are together on some kind of an ongoing basis. They're side by side at the Jordan, uh, and they're, going, they're seeing each other daily. Uh, this has been going on long enough that Jesus appears to be drawing a bigger crowd. John has no reason to tell us that, unless it's just part of the tradition that he's picked up, which is what we think is going on. There appears to be a time that we otherwise know nothing about, a time before the other Gospels pick up this story, before the traditional start of the ministry of Jesus. Now, other references indicate that even after this period, John and Jesus continued to be together for a period of time at an entirely different location. Have you been taught that? I was not taught that, uh, but it's in the Gospel of John. After this, after all that stuff down at Bethany beyond the Jordan in the south, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. What you need to know about the Judean countryside and the way that John uses the term, it could refer to Judea, Perea, Samaria, and the Transjordan. It's all that could be anywhere in that area. Okay? He spent some time there with them and baptized. John also was baptizing, and here it comes, if I get there, at Anon near Selim. Jesus is baptizing. John's also there baptizing. And where's the location? Anon near the same. Here's the question. Where the heck's Anon? It's not real big on the deal uh, because water was abundant there. So we know. Now, can you see the upper circle? 
Anon's on a map. Why is it on a map? Well, it's on a map because of the famous Madaba mosaic. Now, have you ever been to Jordan to uh, Amman? Okay, just outside Amman is the town of Madaba. Uh, Madaba just happens to be right next to where John was baptizing at Bethany beyond the Jordan. And there's an early Byzantine church there, 4th century. Has the earliest known map of the ancient world. And has two things in the map. One at the bottom is a map of Jerusalem. And this is after the Romans destroyed. This is the Roman city of Jerusalem. Area Capitolina. And we actually see the Cardia going down the center there. All those little red roofed houses. Now what's interesting is the upper part. Can you see what's in the upper part on the right hand side? Big boat. Okay. Where is the lake that they fish? Sea of Galilee. And flowing out of it is the river. Now what's interesting about this is in this map, look on the upper left hand side with the little thing spinning. If you know your Greek, A-N-O-N. Anon. Uh, which is why, by the way, if you go to Israel now and you're baptized up north, not where John baptized up north, that's in the basic area of that. By the way, this is what it looks like today. Nice, right? And John said they were ba uh, baptizing there because water was plentiful. Now, the Israelis now use it to irrigate, so by the time it gets south, it's nothing. Uh, but it's still there. Then John adds what is the kicker. Critical comment. Verse 30, uh, 24. John, of course, had not yet been thrown into prison. Which means all of this stuff that he's been talking about happened when? Before. Which is before the Gospel of Mark starts. It's previous material, okay? According to John's Gospel, there's references to a time before John is arrested, a period the other Gospels are silent about, and a time when Jesus and John are active, first in the south, then in the north, at Anon near Salim. Uh, their joint ministry extends over uh, ends when John was arrested. Makes total sense. And at that point, Jesus then goes to Galilee and begins where our Gospels begin, whereas, which is where they pick up the story. Um, now, here's the question. Is there any independent evidence that would lend credence to what John says? It turns out there is. Again, I didn't learn that in Sunday school. Uh, two sources. The first is the Gospel of Mark itself, which is a bit anti-intuitive. You'd think, Mark, okay. And the other is the first major church historian, Eusebius. Okay, let's look at Mark. Mark tells us, Mark's Gospel tells us that it starts only when John is arrested and Jesus goes north. Again, we've, we've seen that before, but here it is. A after John is arrested, Jesus goes north. That's the starting point. Okay, so John Mark does not really get into that stuff prior to that. Uh, the material in John one and three are prior to, as John's clearly indicated. Uh, and this is a period that the other gospels simply they just don't get into. There's a lot they don't get into. The other source, and this is a fascinating one, is the fourth century church historian Eusebius of Caesarea. Now, one of the wonderful things about Eusebius is Eusebius would take the earlier writers your first, second, third century, and he would quote long passages from them, which is wonderful because those other writers no longer survive. So where's the only place their writings survive? In Eusebius, okay? And he draws on this early Christian tradition. Here's what he says, volume three. The apostle John gave in his gospel an account of the period which had been omitted by the earlier evangelists and of the deeds done by the Savior during that period. John, in his gospel, 
records the deeds of Christ which were performed before the Baptist was cast into prison. But the other three evangelists mention the events which happened after that time. Now, for sure, his source may be the Gospel of John. But at the minimum, it tells us that in the early church, what did they believe about John and the other evangelists? They believed that John had some material that was prior to, which makes sense. Uh, not only do they overlap chronologically and geographically, but here's where it really starts to get interesting. Uh, there are other ways that they overlap, too. Again, John, his group. And by the way, you know his group survived his death. We've got in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and the, and, and the others are running into Baptist groups, Baptist disciples. Uh, we know that they, they found that cave in Jerusalem where the group survived for like a century. We think the Baptist group survived into the third century. So you've got the Baptist group, you've got the Jesus group out there. Uh, there's hundreds of groups that are Jewish nature. Only two practice baptism in the way that John did. By itself, not the big smoking gun, but it is definitely interesting. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. He spent some time there with them and baptized. It, it's so funny. In the Gospel of John, we have this. John mentions it four times. Three times he says, Jesus baptized, Jesus baptized, Jesus baptized. Four times he goes, oh, by the way, Jesus and they're baptized. Now, wait a minute. Jesus baptized, Jesus baptized, Jesus Jesus never baptized. Which one do you believe? Why would you say he didn't? Now, there's some, something going on there. Yeah, some kind of competition or, or th- some theological stuff. Well, f- yeah. Um, now, Jesus and John both were baptized into Christ. John taught the Christ. Jesus came by Christ. And fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. And mm-hmm. In the New Testament, that would clearly be the Pentecost story. Tongues of fire descend on. And in Paul's ministry, Paul, for Paul, it's very clear that it's the gift of the Spirit, the charismatic gift of the Spirit, that clearly marks one as a believer and marks one as a Christian. So much so, if you have not had that, for Paul, there would be some, you know, I'm not real sure, you know. But it's a, it's a, it's a Pentecost story would fit in that. Uh, the, uh, in the book of Acts, the other Pentecost stories, at Caesarea, the Gentile Pentecost and all that. Uh, Paul clearly is, refers to that's going on at Corinth and that's going on in some of his early churches that kind of experience yeah Holy Spirit and fire but the Pentecost story clearly a tongues of fire descending there's a clear connection between those good question okay um, now let's take it further John and Jesus even share some of the same disciples now I know we've read this story probably just you're like me you just didn't pay attention to it according to John the core group around which Jesus is going to build his 12 and start his movement, he doesn't go out and just pick random people. He doesn't go out and just pick anybody. He starts by mining the Baptist group. And he picks up two, probably four from that group. By the way, three of them are from the same town, which is another story, Bethsaida. Another reason you want to study that place. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. Whose disciples are they? Clearly, they're John's disciples. As he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, there is the Lamb of God. In the Gospel of John, Jesus dies when? A day earlier, at the exact time the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Okay, this is Johanna theology. The two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. Remember that story? 
And Jesus said, uh, and they, they talked to him, Jesus says, come and see. And they come and they stay with Jesus and they move from the Baptist group to the Jesus group. Or more likely, within the Baptist Jesus group, they shift over to primary with Jesus. These are Andrew and Simon Peter. Are they of some significance? Interesting. Now, as the story then goes on, you know, those two go out and recruit two more, right? Okay. So what do we wind up with? We wind up Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Andrew, Simon Peter, and Philip have Greek names. They're all from Bethsaida, and archaeologists found pig bones in Bethsaida, as well as stone cups. And it's to Philip that the Greeks will then later go and say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Start fitting together? Interesting with that. This is the core around which Jesus is going to build his group and launch his ministry. So next week, finally, leave John behind, move north. Jesus is going to stage in Capernaum. We want to look at some stuff. For example, if you were going to say off the top of your head, what, what is Jesus? Uh, most people say he's a teacher, right? That does not wash in the New Testament. Of the four things that Jesus did, probably teaching is the least significant. Teaching didn't draw crowds. What drew crowds? Healing. Miracles kind of thing. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this ministry up there. I think we'll have just enough time. Holy Week, we'll move back down to Jerusalem. But uh, the money's on Galilee. Okay, there's a lot going on in Galilee. Okay. <laughs>